Anybody have the perfect father? Yeah. <laughs> Liars. Actually, we have one in the room that we get to hear from later this morning. His name's Darren Herbold, and he's the perfect father, right, Judah? <laughs> Judah's like, yes, yeah, yeah. Um, this is what I love about Father's Day and Mother's Day. We did this on Mother's Day, too. Um, we're, like, faced with the reality. We're, we're, we're faced almost with um, just a moment of awareness and focus on how imperfect our fathers are. And, um, and to varying degrees, right? And uh, we wrestle on days like Father's Day. We wrestle to, um, to sometimes celebrate our very own dad, to sometimes celebrate fatherhood in general. We, we wrestle with it because we want, to, um, well, we want to do the right thing by celebrating, but we're also wrestling with the things that are a challenge to us, the pain that exists in our life as a result of uh, missing the mark in parenting, missing the mark in fathering. And, and that's what I want to say to you today at this church. Um, when it comes to celebrating, especially days like Mother's Day and Father's Day, what we're doing here is we're celebrating the ideal. We're celebrating, like, the goodness in our fathers. And, and we will benefit from today if we take any amount of time to, um, to, to, to at least identify what some of those good things are in the fathers around us, in the earthly fathers. It's, there's nothing wrong with your father being imperfect. And there's nothing wrong with your broken relationship with him in some ways. There's nothing wrong with the pain. It's not like you have to ignore that on a day like today, but a day like today is, is not necessarily to, um, is to spend all your time recognizing all of that. It's really to identify like the best. And then, and then also to recognize that every father in this room right now, um, they actually want to be the best. Like they don't, they're not aiming at the things they're failing at. They're not aiming at the things, they weren't aiming at the things that, that they messed up in, right? There's, um, there's like this, there's this, there's this um, image of God in every father that, um, that they truly deeply desire to, to imitate, to, um, to be, to become. And, um, and some, you know, some of us have a lot more stones that need to be chipped away but, but, but in every single father, there is that gem. There is a beautiful image of God. Every single father is made by God in the image of God for the purpose of actually living like our heavenly father lives. And that's why in a church, this becomes way more meaningful and, and, and interesting because we actually have a perfect example of a good father and a loving father. And, and just know today, the fathers in the room, they recognize probably a lot of their faults more than you realize they do. And um, they also, if they're following Jesus and they want to become like Christ, and they actually are desiring to be like that perfect example in a father. And you can see celebrate those things in them in the way that Rachel told her kids this morning that oftentimes you just got to call those things out and it helps us become the very thing that you can call out. And I would say that's true of fathers on Father's Day and mothers on Mother's Day and just in general. Let's recognize the good and celebrate that and be thankful for that. And, uh, and also recognize like, man, we're all aiming at something and we're all falling short, but let's stop. Let's not stop aiming at that and celebrating that. So happy Father's Day, dads. I feel you and I'm with you. And, uh, yeah, you're loved here. I, um, June, uh, not June, um, in 2011, I, uh, I made this graphic, this, this, this graphic. I was playing with, like, making graphics on the internet, and, um, and there was this thing that happened in Japan in 2011. I don't remember. It was a big earthquake and caused a tsunami, and it was wild. Right? I think over 20,000 people died or something tragic like that, and, 
I remember making this graphic, this like pray for Japan graphic, because that's what you kind of did back then. You responded to things that happened globally with like, we should pray for them. And then, and then you often saw memes get shared around. And so I made this thing and, and it got more traction than I thought. It didn't go viral or anything like that, but a lot of people picked up on it, shared it, downloaded it, sent it around. And, and, uh, and I thought, oh man, I did a really good thing. I spread prayer for Japan through making this kind of this, this image. Um, since then, and I just remember since then, because I took a lot of time to think about what I was doing when I was doing it, since then I actually wrestled with, and I still wrestle with, the, um, the weird thing we do culturally when anything happens in the world that we hear on the news or that we're aware of where we just like post hashtag pray for et cetera, or like we share memes about praying for this, or even you see articles written by people who are like quite clearly and maybe expressively irreligious writing articles about praying for this or or we should pray for this nation. We should, you know, you hear presidents or prime ministers or heads of state talking about prayer. And I don't know about you, but over the last little while, I've become more and more cynical of even hearing that. I don't know if, if that's your story, but for me, um, there's a couple things that I think drive my cynicism. One of those things is that I don't trust that people who use the language of pray even know, like they wouldn't, I don't trust that they can define prayer because I wrestle with defining it. So if you ask them, like, what do you mean by that, sir? Pray for fill in the blank, Ukraine. What do they mean by that? I don't even know if I'm being able to answer that question because I wrestle with it myself. And, and maybe even worse, I, sometimes I think we've just replaced, like, we, we, we've, we've taken the word prayer, but what we really just mean is, like, have, you know, nice thoughts about. We, we, there's, there's no person connected to it on the other end, especially in a secular environment like ours, right? You hear people talk about praying for things, but it's like, man, are you praying to something or somebody? Or is it just like good wishes to the world? Or is it like sending good vibes to the universe? Like, is, is it grown cynical because I think a lot of people use that language, but that's actually what they mean. We don't really understand it. And the second thing that actually has driven my cynicism is like, does our prayer for example, Ukraine, right? Does it do anything? It doesn't seem to be right now, right? Or we at least just wrestle with like, wow, something really bad and tragic happened. If we all get together and share a hashtag and maybe even talk about praying for like, is it really making a difference? Is it, does prayer actually matter? Or are we just like, should we be pragmatists about it and actually just go ahead and start doing stuff? So, so that drives my cynicism. I wrestle with that. And I want to talk about that a little bit this morning about prayer mattering. Does prayer matter? And particularly through the lens of like intercessory prayer for global issues and global justice, because oftentimes that's when the topic of prayer comes to the forefront of our culture and society, especially here in the West. It's only when something really bad happens tragically across the world that we even start to think about praying for something. And, and so I just want to, I want to press into that this morning, and then we're actually going to have a, a nice little interview this morning um, with, a, with obviously a dear friend of our church and somebody even a little more important than just being a friend of our church to talk about missions and talk about um, global justice. If you have a scriptures, you can turn to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're just going to look at that a little bit this morning while we ask the question, does intercessory prayer for global um, justice matter? And I think the answer to that question is yes. And we're, so we're going to see that a little bit this morning, I hope. 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is Paul's letter to a young leader in the church. He says this, he says, I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. He goes on to say, this is good and it pleases God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, 
that man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed at the proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. And a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. Uh, Paul kind of lays out like this call to the church and the call to leaders particularly in the church through Timothy. But his, his call is actually to all men and all men and women, all people everywhere, because everybody can pray and petition to God. And that call is to first make petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving for all people. George Knight in his commentary on this text, I actually liked how he opened this up for us. Um, he kind of takes those four words of petitions, prayers, intercessions, thankfulness, and, and, uh, and revisits them in the original. And this is, he kind of says, this is the sense of each of those words. Because some of them to us may sound repetitive in our English language. And so uh, the first one, petitions, is to make requests for specific needs. The second one, prayers, is to uh, bring those in view before God. The third one, their intercessions, is to appeal boldly on behalf of others. And the fourth one is to be thankful for those who you just prayed for. We're going to revisit this kind of four-step model at the end of the service where we're actually just going to practice this together and pray for something that's coming up and that we're doing. So what kind of things or people do we pray for? In this text, we actually see that uh, we pray for kings and all in authority. Now, I don't think that means we don't pray for those who are under authority. Um, but what Paul's getting at here is when we're praying about global issues, when we're praying um, internationally, when we're praying and interceding on behalf of uh, nations and people groups and natural disasters that have a lot to do with a lot of people in large groups, um, his suggestion is actually praying for those in authority or kings. Now, why does he say that? Uh, the reason, at least in this text, is that um, those are the people who have the ability to lead towards peaceful and quiet lives. That's what you see in the text here. Phil Towner in his IVP uh, commentary, he says, the immediate goal of prayer for the state is that it fulfill its God-given function of maintaining an orderly and peaceful environment that we may live peaceful and quiet lives. This goal is meant to serve a higher end. What is sought is the best conditions for expanding God's kingdom, not simply a peaceful Life. Sometimes we can hear that and we think, wow, God wants us to just pray that everybody is really comfortable and secure and can just sit back on their restoration hardware couch and relax for all the rest of time. And that's not actually what the prayer is. Um, we have the purpose of praying for that is so that there's a ripe environment for the gospel to go forth. That there is a free environment, a clear path for the kingdom of God to be built. That's what the prayer is for. And the people who have access to that or sometimes have the means to provide that are those who are in authority in their time, in their culture, and as well in ours. And so that's what he's suggesting that we pray for. So why do we pray for global justice? Well, simply put, we pray for global justice because we as Christians want to see the kingdom of God come to earth as it is in heaven not just here in Milton, but for every man, every woman, and every place. It's easy to lose sight of that as we get caught up in the minute challenges we have in our day-to-day. -day. 
Phil Towner, he says continually, he says that local work is certainly important and in need of prayer, yet sometimes we lose sight of the fact that this work is a part of a larger task that's been set before the worldwide church to accomplish in unison. I really appreciated this thought because um, it, it celebrates the balance of what's happening locally down to the individual life and praying for the individual across the room and across the table from you. And, and it actually suggests that that work that you're doing there is actually for the purpose, the worldwide purpose that the church was set in advance to accomplish, which is to build the kingdom of God in unison together. So to know that your prayers locally are actually having an impact globally, and then it's also to remind us of having a conscious awareness of what's happening globally when it's really easy to get lost in the local. Paul says that we should do this for all people, all people, not just the ones we love and we hope make it through, not just the ones that we want deeper relationship with, not just the ones that we found ourselves to be surrounded by, but all people. Siri's responding. Anybody else have an amen? (laughs) Thank you, Siri. There's a theological why in this text, too. I love this. He says, here's the layout. Here's what we should do, and here's why. And then he goes, the theological why is this. For there's one God and one mediator between God and mankind, that man, Christ Jesus. Paul's why and our why is because there's one mediator of all mankind to mediate the relationship between people and God. And that person is Christ Jesus. And therefore, if all people are made in the image of God for the purpose of having relationship with God, and there's one mediator between that, then we pray for the world to get access to this God through the person of Jesus Christ, through the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's the why. And it's enough of a why to be motivated to do. You don't need any more explanation. So does this prayer matter? Does this kind of prayer matter? Uh, Gary Haugen, the founder of International Justice Mission, he talked at a prayer conference a few years ago on uh, prayer mattering, and I actually found some of these thoughts helpful um, in the past, and I want to bring them up again today. He suggests that there's two ways that we use the language of matter. Actually, three ways. One is like physical matter. We're not talking about kind of the matter that makes up the universe, the physical properties of the universe. We're talking about the two other uses of matter. He says that one other use of matter is uh, having the sense of value, right? So that matters to me because it brings value to my life because uh, it has meaning in my life. For example, my wife, she matters to me. My kids, they matter to me. Maybe you have a family heirloom that really matters to you. It actually doesn't really like benefit you in any kind of way. It doesn't produce any results or any fruit or anything, but it's meaningful to you. Like, that matters to me. Those photo albums matter to me. It's a sense of having value, a sense of having meaning for you. Your, your local sports team's failing constantly in Toronto. Like It matters to us. Not that it really does anything for us, but for some reason it really matters. It matters whether they do well or not. It impacts us in some kind of way, but it's, it's the idea of having some sense of value to it, whether or not it accomplishes anything at all. You could just pick another team. So prayer matters. I'm not bitter. It doesn't matter to me. (laughs) So yes, prayer matters. It matters in the sense of having value. And the reason why it matters primarily is because people matter to God. Obviously, people have value, right? Prayer matters because people matter and people have value. So it matters that we pray. Prayer matters because you matter. You matter to God. 
Prayer matters because your relationship matters to God. God wants a relationship to you, and he wants a relationship with you. That really matters to God, and it should matter to you. It adds value to your life. It should be of meaning and value in your life. And so prayer, yes, prayer does matter. I want you to think for a second, thought experiment. The people in your life, there may only be a handful of people in your life that you would take a bullet for. The people in your life that if they were sick or something tragic was happening, you're stopping everything to go help. Everything to be alongside of. Think about the person, the handful of people in your life that nothing would come before to, to rescue, to find if they were lost, or to care for, or to heal, or to protect, right? Think about the handful. It's probably not much more than a handful, maybe a couple handfuls if you're a saint. But think about that. There's a lot of things happening in the world, and we are not stopping what we're doing in order to go save, in order to go rescue, in order to go heal, in order to go find, Right? That way you feel about those people, maybe they're your kids, maybe they're a sibling, maybe they're a spouse. God feels that way about eight billion people who are alive today, the way you feel about them, right? If God is the loving Father and the perfectly loving Father and he loves every single one of his creation equally as he loves us, then those people matter to God the way that your kids matter to you, the way your spouse matters to you. So to prayer matter? Yes. Jesus confirms this in Luke chapter 15. He says, Now the tax collectors and sinners, they were gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then Jesus told them this parable that hopefully most of you are familiar with. He says, Suppose that one of you has lost a hundred sheep, or has a hundred sheep, but you lose one of them. Doesn't that shepherd go after the one and leave the 99? Chases the one to find it. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Obviously, there's a play going on here where there's no such thing as 99 people who don't need to repent. But the point is that the love of the Father goes after the one, goes after the lost sheep, and whoever that lost sheep is. That's the heart of the Father. And every single lost sheep, the Father wants to go after, and he wants to go after equally the same amount of vigor because he loves them the same way that you love those who are the most close to you. This is the heart of the Father, and we see this represented in Jesus. When you understand how much God's world matters to him, then you start to understand why your prayers for the world matter so much. So do they matter? Yeah, they matter because they have intrinsic value. They matter because it matters to God, because people matter to God. But the second question about does it matter, this is the one we often wrestle with. When you think about something mattering, you're actually referring to something that has causality, right? Does prayer drive causality? I think you all get the first one. Most people are like, oh, that sounds nice and wonderful, and I can buy that. That's true, but the causality piece we wrestle with. Does prayer make a difference? Does my prayer cause something to change? Right? So when you say something matters in this sense, you're talking about maybe like, yeah, my kid's eating healthy food. It doesn't matter because it's just a value that we hold. It matters because it actually makes them into healthier human beings when they grow up. It has a difference. There's a causality attached to it. When we give generously to God, it's, it impacts the work that we're doing. So it matters because it has a natural impact. It has causality that drives it. When, when we are heading to a destination, the direction that we take it matters, not 
because of any like random intrinsic value that it has to, but it actually gets us there quicker, right, for the purpose in which we're heading there. So that's what we mean by, by matter in a sense of driving causality. Does prayer matter? Does prayer drive causality? The causality of prayer, it's a mysterious reality, and I think anybody who's been praying for a long time would, would still say this. It's not like you pray more and then it becomes less mysterious, the more that you pray and ask and petition, the more mysterious this becomes. The less certain you become about it, the less like um, God as a, as a slot machine, like that, that, that dies quickly because the more you pray, the more you realize, I don't have control over the outcome here. I don't know, there's no method, there's no system, there's no formula that leads to the results I'm hoping for. It becomes more of a mystery, but the more you also pray, the more you start to experience prayers answered in a way you can't explain. The more you pray, the more you start to see prayer actually drives causality in a way that I don't quite understand, but the best explanation for what just happened here is that a bunch of people seriously got in a room and prayed. I love this quote from Blaise Pascal. He says, God instituted prayer in order to lend his creatures the dignity of causality. We wrestle sometimes with the sovereignty of God and the free will of humans, right? And this to me is just like a beautiful way to just sit and ponder the sovereign God who has power over all things, knows all things, if that is the nature of God. Somehow our prayer has some causality to it. Somehow the things that we do, if we don't do them, i.e. pray, the things we pray for, the things that we petition, somehow in scripture it's pretty clear, and from experience sometimes it seems pretty clear that they have an effect on the outcome. God instituted prayer in order to lend his creatures the dignity of causality. The causality of our prayers are a mystery and they're hard to understand mechanically. However, scripture affirms it over and over again. Our actions and our prayers towards Jesus are for the sake of others. In Matthew 25, he says this, I was a stranger and you didn't invite me. I needed clothes and you didn't clothe me. I was sick in prison and you didn't look after me. They all answered, Lord, when do we see you sick or estranged or thirsty? And he replied, truly I tell you, whatever you did not for one of the least of these, you also did for me. So do prayers matter? Well, yeah, our prayers for people and about people matter. They make a difference. And in according with Jesus, our actions make a difference. And when our actions make a difference, they actually are unto God. And the same is true with our prayer life. When we pray and we're praying for others, it is as if we are praying to God and it does change circumstances according to scriptures. It's pretty clear. We have Philippians 4, chapter 6. It says this, Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything pray and offer prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. It seems to be a promise. Matthew 21 says, Whatever you ask in prayer, you'll receive if you have faith. And 1 John 5.14 says, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. It's pretty clear that our prayer matters. Like the way that God set things up in his economy somehow, that they actually have causality, they drive causality, and they make a difference. And minimally, minimally, our prayers drive a difference in us. They cause a difference in us, don't they? Prayer makes others matter more to us. That's a fact. 
The more that we pray, the more consciously we are aware of things that are going around people and their needs, and it often drives us to a place of having the character and the motivation to do something about it. So minimally, they have an impact on us and they change our behavior. Does prayer for those on the other side of the world matter? Well, at least it makes us more concerned about what's going on, and at least it drives us to a new level of action that we weren't taking in the past minimally. And all on top of that is a beautiful mystery that if you ask people who pray, they'll say, I don't really know, man, but somehow things really changed when we started praying. Somehow, somehow that happened miraculously. I don't have an explanation, but I know a group of people got together and prayed for it. John Stott, he says this, it's because God's desire in Christ's death concern everybody that the church's prayers and proclamation must concern everybody too. So does prayer matter? It sure does. John Stott, he goes on to say, I sometimes wonder whether the comparatively slow progress towards peace and justice in the world and towards world evangelization is due more than anything else to the prayerlessness of the people of God. That one was convicting. So as we slow down here for a second and we actually bring another friend up to have another conversation in regards to this, uh, I just want to let you guys know as a church that we feel compelled to continue to move in the direction of and drive in the direction as a community, local community, both to be worshiping, to be serving, to be praying, to be caring, to be forming, to be discipling locally, as well as we have a call of mission globally. And that's something that we've been a part of in this church's history since the start. It's in our name, the Christian and Missionary Alliance, and we'll learn a little bit more about that for those who are unfamiliar. And it's a direction that we feel like God is actually thrusting us into as a church as we explore what's next for us and what does it look like for us here at Southside to have impact global, locally and also globally. Before we do that, I want to, um, I'm going to show you a quick video. It's a couple minutes long, and then uh, in that time, uh, one of our dear friends, Darren Herbold, is going to come up, and he's going to sit with me, and we're going to have a conversation about CMA stuff, as well as something that's kind of coming up in the kind of immediate future for Darren and I, and then on behalf of our church. So roll this video, check the it out. The following may seem outrageous, but trust me, it's an underestimation. I want you to stop Clear your mind and be open to a reality happening right now that might be new to you. The global population growth is outpacing the rate at which the church is reaching people by a growing margin. As an example, India alone grows by the equivalent of Canada's population every 18 months. And only 5% of India lives in areas reached with the gospel. Roughly four out of every 10 people on the planet not only have never heard the good news, but they don't even have access to it. There's no local pastor, no Christian radio, no alpha group, no church. It's like Paul writes to the church in Rome. How can someone believe in something they've never heard? And how will they hear if there's no one to tell them? So now what? I get it. You're already tackling so many critical needs in your community and around the world. Compassion cannot sleep. But we have an opportunity to reach the unreached at scale if together we focus on what could be the biggest domino. The one region that may present the greatest opportunity of being a gateway to reach the entire world. It comes down to the exponential power of numbers. 
One out of every four people alive right now live in South Asia. That's 1.9 billion people and over 1.8 billion unreached lives. That's a big number to wrap your head around. So let me just put it this way. If you set a timer right now for 1.8 million seconds, it would stop in 20 days. But if you set it for 1.8 billion seconds, it will stop in 57 years. Reaching just 1% of this region would be the equivalent of reaching more than the entire population of Hong Kong, New Zealand, Montreal, and Ireland combined. 50% of the world's remaining unreached people groups live in this region, along with 40% of the world's poorest people. And it's also one of the most persecuted places on the planet. The church in the global south, specifically South Asia, will play a disproportionate role in the evangelization of the world. Will we join them, support them, encourage them? Reaching this region is a massive gateway to reaching the world and a critical priority of the global church. It will require us to be all in. It will demand full-scale mobilization of our churches and communities. It will require a historic move of God's spirit. It will come at a cost, but it will be worth it. And over the next 10 years, we are partnering with South Asians, not just to reach South Asia, but for South Asia to reach the world. It is well within reach to plant 50,000 churches, baptizing 500,000 multiplying disciples, making this one of the greatest evangelistic movements that we may ever see by 2030. That's pretty cool. You made that a couple years ago? Yep. That was Darren's uh, voice in the background of that. For those who don't know, um, Darren is the new president of the Christian and Missionary Alliance in Canada, which is uh, a, an alliance of, what, 450 churches across Canada or so. And uh, you've been new at that. You've been doing this for how many, how long now? Started in August. So okay. what is that, nine months, ten months? Yeah, it's yeah. an amazing privilege to have Darren here with us. Um, Darren and his family, they moved to Milton, and so they're a part of our community. They love our community. They worship here. They serve here. Naomi, Darren's wife, is part of the team revitalizing the basement uh, in order to be um, you know, a, a missionary hub and be able to connect with people in our community. And, and they're just kind of all in incredible people and have an amazing story and have been on a journey um, in the West and then in the East and now back in the West representing the work that you're doing in the East. So we're going to talk about that a little bit because Darren and I are, are going somewhere together in, uh, in a little bit. Um, but we'll talk about that in a second. What I wanted to do is I asked Darren to be here this morning to ask him, a, uh, give us a little bit of a crash course on the Christian and Missionary Alliance in Canada and its kind of collaboration or, or its um, it's bent towards global missions because sometimes it's something that we miss. It's sometimes it's easy to forget. And some of us come from different churches that that's been a priority and some come from churches where that hasn't been a priority. So at an Alliance church, it is an, a priority from the get-go. So why don't you give us a little bit of background about the Christian and Missionary Alliance and uh, why missions is central to who we are, what our identity is as a faith community. Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, we just love being part of the Milton family here at Southside. And for our, our family, it's just a great privilege. And uh, so as, as we get to meet more of you, we just, we just love being in Ontario and in Milton. Originally from Alberta, then overseas in Thailand, and now here in Ontario. Um, the Christian Missionary Alliance as a denomination, a, a, what, one of the things I love, I didn't grow up in the denomination. Sometimes you're in church denominations, 
and it feels like everyone knows everybody, right? And uh, if you've been a part of that, I, I didn't grow up in the Alliance, but I've grown to love the Alliance and have, have been serving in this context for uh, many years. But j just really quickly, uh, f started by a guy named A.B. Simpson. He was born in Prince Edward Island, so it's actually a, a movement started in Canada. Uh, then he served for a very long time as a Presbyterian pastor in Hamilton for many years, down in the States, and ultimately at a very well-known, famous Presbyterian church in New York, right in Manhattan. Right in Manhattan. And, and then along the way, he just had this compulsion. He's like, I, we need to be serving not only the world, the message of Jesus in the world, but those that are down and out. A lot of the immigrants that were coming to Manhattan were in desperate need. And he had this, he had this moment, he's like, we need to be helping. And, and I don't know about you, sometimes, sometimes you have these moments where you feel like God is leading you, right? So we're talking about prayer and it's, we don't always understand it, somewhat mystical. And sometimes you have these moments where like, God is leading me. And, and Abe Simpson, Abe had this moment. And I don't know about you, but you're like, sometimes people are like, are you sure? Uh, are you sure God's saying this, this is kind of a crazy idea. Are you sure you're supposed to do it? Like, no, I know I need to do this. And then you jump, you have this big moment of faith and you're all energy and you jump in the deep end and then all of a sudden you're like, whoa, this is a lot harder than I thought. It, is that, did I actually hear from Jesus? And, and that is what happened to AB. He jumped in, he quit this well-known pastorate to go uh, to the down and out of society in New York and he called all these church leader Christians it wasn't denominational to come together to a meeting and only seven people showed up and that's that's part of the story of how the Christian Missionary Alliance started among other ways but to go to where people aren't going to the least reached places of the world both here and ultimately to the ends of the world yeah that's awesome one of the things I loved about learning about the CMA history and A.B. Simpson's uh, history and like the teams that followed after that was that it actually was, um, it wasn't rooted, it was rooted in a call to global mission, but it was actually, they believed that that, that that call would be fulfilled by actually focusing on the vitality of the believer here and the spiritual formation. So if you actually read in the history of the Alliance, there's a strong emphasis from the start on a refocus on Jesus, on a recentering of the main things, on a like go back to the primary disciplines in order to have life in Jesus, experience the presence of God, be formed by God's presence, and that's what drove the uh, what well, drove the work that they did subsequently. And yeah, you'll you'll hear terms often if you're in that kind of church circles. They'll talk about deeper life and missions. Deeper life is who is Jesus? How does that live out personally in my life? And then in light of that, how does He call us forward into the world as we live out? Uh, as the Spirit enables us to go work boldly in his name. Like, and just for context, if people have, if you read books like A.W. Tozer, famous Christian author, uh, Alliance Pastor was, was leading in that. Actually, the, the history of the Globe and Mail in Canada, uh, Mr. Jaffrey founded it. He was the owner and CEO. And then he wanted his son to take over. But his son, Robert Jaffrey, got connected with the Alliance and he felt called to be a missionary and his dad wouldn't fund him a dime. Hmm. But he says, but if you come back, I'll pay for your return trip. <laughs> and Robert Jaffrey went on to do this incredible work in Asia and eventually ended up dying overseas. So if you've been around Southside for any amount of time, you would know that it feels like God's actually bringing us back to a refocusing, a recentering 
on the main things to the spiritual disciplines and, and, and spending time in the presence of God, being formed in the presence of God to then have mission flow from that. I think a lot of us are coming from places that kind of mission and attraction and trying to do all that stuff was forefront and we did it without the, the power and the vitality from the presence of God and being filled by the Spirit of God. And so we've been on that journey ourselves as a church and I think the church locally is on that journey. And so when I started reading up on this history, I thought, wow, that's exactly where we're at. We weren't making these decisions about where we're going and, and the refocus and the reprioritization because, oh, it's in the CMA's history. I had no idea about that until I went back at it and I saw it. And to me, it was, um, it was just really, uh, it confirmed a lot of what God's already done here, what he's been doing, where he's leading us, and then maybe where he wants to lead us in the future. Um, I wanted to ask you, because one of the things that we wrestle with in the 21st century West, this is the conversation around global missions right now, at least, and some of you may be familiar with that, is, is that we see global missions today as kind of like today's modern colonization, and we don't see that as a positive thing, or at least some people in, um, in our communities and in education don't see that as a positive, it's a very negative thing. And so how would you respond to the, to the question that many of us probably have, which is, are we still doing, I thought we were done with the sending, you know, Westerners to other places in the world to do global missions thing, because we're not, we're not trying to be colonists anymore because of all the evils and the bad that was, that was done from that. So how would you respond to that take or that sense that I think a lot of us are hearing in this I conversation? Mean, it's, it's a really relevant and important question. Yesterday, I think it was yesterday afternoon, Andrew sends me, hey, let's talk about this. <laughs> and I was like, that's awesome. <laughs> but this, this is really, it's an important question. So let me, I was, I was thinking about this specifically yesterday evening and this morning. By, uh, by colonization, we're speaking in part of the, of the mission movement of the past, primarily by Western society societies and their attempt at westernization of indigenous so non-west cultures just so we have a definition of what, what we're talking about and uh, ve very simply when we talk about that it's when people look at other people and they go I see differences and that feels weird and thus we make this incredible jump to go because it feels different and weird then it therefore it must be wrong and then we want to, be, often because of power imbalance, we want to change society based on our interpretation of what it should look like. Mm. That is not missions. Mm. Um, have, have, has Christianity in the past operated that way with a lot of governments clearly working with that mandate in the past? And it, yes, clearly. Uh, those are things that are, are not right. But what missions is about is about obeying the commands of Christ to declare his truth not my culture, not my preference to all people, and for him and his spirit through that host culture to discern any contextual change that the Holy Spirit might be bringing about or working on the life of a local believer. They get to do the work of contextual work and what the differences are, but it's Jesus's truth. Now, as I was thinking about this, this maybe just a little bit of a rabbit trail. We didn't, we didn't talk about this, but how do you define truth? That is a big question in society today, isn't it? And, and as I was thinking about this, you know, let's just really quickly, John 14, you know, one of perhaps the most controversial statements that Jesus makes, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. It's, it's not something he has. It's not facts that he wants to give us. It is, truth is who Jesus is. So that, that's in John. It's, it's John 
1. It's in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it says, in him, that is in Jesus, is life. And in Colossians, it says all things were created through him and by him. And he holds all things together. And so Jesus isn't this great philosopher or teacher. He, he is the truth. And I love what a pastor in the States once said. He's a, Matt Chandler is a pastor, and he says, it means that truth is, is external and fixed, not internal and fluid. And I think this is a really important distinction because there was just recently a study that came out that said 91% of North Americans believe this statement. That 91% of people agree that the best way to find yourself is to look inside yourself. Um, and yet, today, we, it's, it's a challenging environment because today, when we disagree with someone, if I hold an opposing view to you, I'm not sure if we can be friends. Culture says, can, and at, at, at worst, maybe that is actually perceived as, a, as an act of aggression against you. An imposition. Yeah. Like it's an act of violence almost against you. And, and in this environment, this is a challenging one that we as followers of Jesus find ourselves in. Um, the most countercultural thing to do in the world today is to proclaim Jesus and his message. Again, not my preference, not my society, or not my culture. And, and let's just be clear, it says even in scripture that Jesus can be and is offensive sometimes, but we are to follow his example of servant leadership, regardless of what people will choose to do with Jesus and his message for them. So what, what, regardless of what people do with Jesus, our posture is one of love and service, because that is, we're following his example to do that. So th that's a, that's a, an intro to a bigger conversation about colonialism or what it is or what it's not. And yet this mandate to still talk about Jesus everywhere in the very unique times I think that we find ourselves in. Yeah, I loved the video that we showed. You talked about reaching um, South Asia so that so they should can reach the world, right? And it's like if, if God gets a hold of South Asia, which he seems to be doing based on the stories I'm hearing, it's like it won't be... We perceive Christianity as this Western thing, and it's a Western religion. It's not. It's actually rooted in the Middle East, and it's, it's a Jewish faith. Um, it's a reformation of it. But, um, but yeah, the idea of like, hey, if, if, if God can get a hold of, of, of a group of people, no matter who that group of people is, no matter what their culture is, no matter what their background is, God will use them to actually share the good news of Jesus across the world. It's not, a, it's not a Western person thing. It's not a white person's work, which is the language you sometimes hear is used around global missions today. And so I love that, I love that attitude and mentality that, that the CMA has and, and their, uh, their wisdom in that. You've worked on the mission field for eight years, so you're coming off of the mission, off of the international mission field uh, because you've been on it for eight, eight years in South Asia. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that experience and where you're coming from and the work that you guys were involved in. So the Christian Missionary Alliance uh, asked Naomi and I to consider going uh, to Thailand and specifically focusing on justice and compassion. And, <clears throat> and, they, and they were building a new team in the south of the country and specifically focused on uh, the exploitation of women, specifically women and children, but men and boys as well. And what, what might that look for? You know, the, the, CIA, the CIA has this statistic that they say that women and children, not prostitution, not pornography, but the sale of another human being is the third largest industry in the world. And, and this is one location where that is significantly rampant. And so the Christian Mission Alliance said, hey, would you discern, would you work with local churches and government? And that is one thing that we did over the last eight years. There's an organization started in Thailand called For Freedom International now. Um, it's based there. It's based in the U.S., uh, Australia, Sweden, a whole bunch of different connections. But uh, th there is this... Southeastern proverb, I'll just say this, that um, so again, you look at culture and it's, it compares, 
it uses gold and cloth. It compares men to gold and women and children to cloth. It says you can drop gold, this is my paraphrase, you can drop gold on the ground, it could get blemished, but you can pick it up, you can polish it off, you can make it shiny again. But cloth, if you drop that in the dirt and mud, uh, it is stained forever. This, this idea that women and children are now exploited and pushed the, to the margins of society, which is of course the opposite of what God says in Isaiah, right? He says, uh, he, he, he almost says, like, come here, let, let's settle this a little bit. I want to have a conversation with you. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them, I will make them white as snow. Um, though they are red as crimson, I will make them white as wool. And it's just this, it is this, this truth. And Mother Teresa, when she was alive, she said that when I look at this massive need around the world, even the stats that you saw, you, you saw just earlier on that video, when I look at the massive need, I'm frozen with inactivity. It's very difficult to take my next step. But when I look at the one person, like you quoted that verse, Jesus leaving the 99 to go, the shepherd to go after the one. She says, when I look at the one face in front of me, it's, very, it's much easier to take that next step. Mm-hmm. And this is for all of us. We, we have those faces in our minds, don't we? When things become personal to us, they become incredibly powerful for us. And this is that principle that Jesus uses. And that's what we focused on when we were overseas. That's good. So um, if we can ask you then, what is... As, as, as a Western church here in Canada, who's a Christian Missionary Alliance church, you worked on the other side of that where you were supported by local churches on this side of, uh, of the border. What would you say is the value of supporting churches through thought, prayer, relational support, and financial to the international work and the work that you're doing there? Because sometimes we can go, does it really make a difference? Is it, you know, are they just asking us for money and that's all they want? Could they just ask any other person for money? Or is there, yep. is there a real benefit to the connection between the supporting churches on the Canadian side and the work that's being done over there? I think for me personally, um, I often have this prayer I write in my journal. What does it look like for me to submit, surrender, and obey to Jesus in greater measure each and every day? And for us as a church, as this body in Milton, what does it look like for us to submit, surrender, and obey Jesus? We're doing this in the series that we're doing this. We're, we're getting together in communities because fellowship is important. And he continues to have this, this, com- this commission to us, this great commission to go. And so part of this is just the responsibility of being together and, and unified and, and praying together and discerning where, what p- little part is the Lord asking us to do here and over there. And so I would just say the Lord... Uh, blesses his people as they obey him and trust him for those things. And, and he does miraculous work. I mean, the amazing story about followership of Jesus is that Jesus, through his people, continues to do things that the world says cannot be done, and you can't explain it. It's like these moments, you know, it's like the people, the Israelites in the city of Jericho in Scripture, right? They didn't, they didn't take an army. They, they sang worship songs and they marched around a building and the walls came down. And what happened? Did everyone go, Joshua, you're such a brilliant... Uh, military commander. No, no, no. They go, clearly that wasn't of human origin, and they glorify God. It gives glory to God. So as we do this, we glorify the Father and his purposes in the world. Awesome. Um, something I'm just going to quickly let you know, and there's a reason why we're telling you all this, because we're going to tell you what, what we're doing in, uh, tomorrow, actually, and then we're going to ask you to pray for us. But um, in, uh, in the Alliance, that's one of the few organizations, missionary organizations, left that still fully funds their missionaries. And how are, how are they funded? What's the fund that they're fully funded from? So we, we have a national fund called the Global Advance Fund. And not that you have, to, you have to remember that, but all the churches across the country, we have right from our beginning... Uh, pooled our money to be able to send workers and to send people overseas and support different projects. And so uh, Alliance 
churches are invited to participate in that. And a lot of uh, missionary um, organizations or international missionaries they actually do their, if they do their own funding. And so a third of their job ends up just being asking for funds to do the work, and it takes them away from the actual work, whereas the Alliance fully funds their international workers, but it doesn't fully fund the projects that they do. And so um, that's a part of it that's on top of the Global Advance Fund right. that yep. local churches and communities partner with these missionaries to accomplish not the work that they're doing, not paying their salary because that's paid out of the Global Advance Fund, but actually doing the work and building the industry, building the um, the the the, the, the whatever, the thing they're building. Um, ministry, the ministry, not industry, uh, that they're building. So, so that's something unique about, um, about the CMA still today. I want to ask you finally, and uh, this, this question, because we talked about praying, intercessory prayer for the church globally, for people globally, for the world. Uh, what's your honest take on the impact of intercessory prayer on global injustice? There's so many verses where Jesus, the Son of God, goes and prays. And as we follow his example, if Jesus is praying and placing a priority on prayer, then it's important for me to do likewise. And he moves in and through his people in ways that are indescribable. And we likely, if you've been following Jesus for a short time or a long time, you probably have a story. And some of them are dramatic, um, some are less dramatic, but they're, they're miraculous in authority. I mean, in, in, in the example and witness. And so it, it moves. And we, we need to, like scripture tells us, it's not just um, a battle against flesh and blood. Uh, regardless of where you stand, there are these spiritual forces at play, and we are asked to come and pray and speak into that. I mean, Paul, one of the early church, I mean, just massive men of faith and missionary, says, hey, would you, people, the church, would you pray for me, Paul, so that I would boldly proclaim Jesus? So one of the early missionaries, he's like, I need your help to be able to do this. And we need each other's help to be able to do that here as well. It's not, it, it is this together piece of over there and here, and it, it, it changes things. And, and it does, you talked about causality. I mean, Matthew 6, I think, talks about that, you know, pray so that you will be kept from temptation. There's a clear causality there. Like, pray so that you will be found strong and able to withstand the attacks of the evil one and be a faithful witness in a context and a culture that is uh, significantly trying to oppose you, and how do you live faithfully in that? So it, it, at the end of the day, it matters, and it matters. I would just say living overseas, um, we are so factual and scientific over here, and over there, everything, everything is spiritual, period, but everything over there is very blatantly spiritual in front of your face, and uh, it's powerful to see when Jesus when the king moves in a mighty way and invites people into him. So please keep praying. Tomorrow, um, Darren and I are going to travel together to, um, are we allowed to say the first place we're going? Oh, yeah. We're going to a communist country and Thailand. <laughs> okay, we're going to a communist <laughs> country and Thailand um, over the next uh, couple weeks um, together. And this is a chance for, for me um, to explore some of that work that Darren and his family and his team have been doing over the last a better part of a decade and, uh, and to see if it's something that we as a church community will get alongside, will partner with, how we can be praying for them, how we can know what's going on there, how we can understand and discern how we could actually just help with that and me personally help with that kind of work and, and, and uh, yeah, and so we're going to explore that together, going to learn a lot, going to experience a lot. I've never been to that part of the world before, so it's going to be a huge uh, cultural experience for me to be able to do. One of the things that is a benefit to prayer and a benefit to exposure is, like what we said, when you're exposed, when you see someone, when, you're, when you see someone's face, they matter to you all of a sudden. 
Right? These are faceless people that don't matter to you right now. But the second they become a face and a name, they matter to you. And, and, uh, and that's kind of step one to, um, to really like, support and help and, um, and, and ministry is, is, is seeing faces that are actually real that matter to me and they matter to me the way they matter to God, right? And so that's kind of what we're going to be doing over the next couple of weeks. So I won't be around for a couple of weeks and neither will Darren. And uh, we're really excited about that, eager about that. And I'm ter- terrified of flying for 30 hours um, in economy uh, for, for the next day. So pray for us. So um, yeah, when we'll, we'll share everything that happens with you and with you. This is, a, this is a community thing that we get to do together and it's by... Um, by the grace of this church and the elders that they can uh, allow me to go on, on work time to do this with, with Darren. And as well, spending a lot of time with Darren is going to be a benefit, I think, to, to me. Uh, i got a lot to learn from, from Darren and the team that he works with there, so I'm really excited about that.